WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to City Talk. One of the nice things about doing this program, at least for me, is that I can pick and choose who I want to talk to. And it's always nice to pick someone you admire, such as the gentleman sitting across from me, well-known voice of anchoring on Channel 5 News, WCVB, Jim Boyd. Jim, I can't tell you how pleased I am that you came in here to do this and sit down and talk for a few minutes. Well, I was more than pleased when I got the call from you asking that I come in and sit down and talk with you. All right. Number of years I used to listen to you on the radio. And number yeah, of so years I watched you on television, so that makes us even. I so wonder who's got the most stories about the other. Um, <laughs> you might have more stories about me than I do about you. <laughs> my, my recollection is that you were on After Dark. Oh, yes. More often than not. And there was a lot of time during my career when as soon as the sun went down, <laughs> I went to bed. Yeah, or even before the sun went down, I you, went to You'd bed. be driving in in the morning probably and listen to Glick as my guesstimation. That used to happen as well, yes. Yep, I, I, I remember those days very well. Yeah, way back in the days when I was doing what we call the eye-opener news at Channel 5. God bless you for and doing that. I was uh, getting up in the morning at about 2.30, 3 o'clock, making my way into WCVB by 5 o'clock. And those were the hardest hours for me, no matter how much sleep I would get before I'd come into work. After 2.30, 3 o'clock, it really got hard. And that's when Larry Glick could say, hey, let's call Muhammad Ali over in Africa. And I'd say, no, Larry, does anybody really care? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Now, in looking you up on Wikipedia, I note that it said something about 1961 and the New York City area. So does that lead me to believe that you are not from Massachusetts? Um, I certainly am now. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but, yeah I, I've been here in Massachusetts Consistently since uh, August of 1971. Okay, but where did you grow up? 1961. Well, I grew up in New York City. Okay. Born and raised in Harlem. Uh -huh. um, as I like to tell people, I'm from Harlem, and I'm going to stay from there. <laughs> okay. Um, but what, what led you to decide that you wanted the medium as a career? Probably came from my love for writing, and as a youngster, that was my main means of communication. Never much of a talker, never much of a conversationalist, but I always loved to write. There were times when I would sit down with my friends, and we were you know, just kind of hanging out, and I would have a pencil and pad, and I would start writing stories about whatever happened, who was doing what. You know, what I felt about this individual or that individual. Um, and, you know, mine is a very, very long, detailed story. Uh, Take all the time you want to went, tell it. Went, went to New York City schools, graduated from George Washington High School in 1958, and immediately went off to college. That was one of the few disappointments in my life. Big disaster. Uh, after three years, I got a letter from what I call the can't people. said, buddy, you can't come back here. <laughs> <laughs> With the grades that you produced for us, 
Um, it, we never think that you're going to be a success as, as a college student. Um, and so basically I was unceremoniously dumped out of college. I was just kicked out. And at that point, I thought that I'd embarrass my parents as much as I ever wanted to again. Uh, and so I decided that, okay, I'm not going to become a New York City statistic. I'm going to do something positive with my life. I'm going to go out and have, get a job. And I walked into this place called National Educational Television and Radio Center. Doesn't exist anymore. NET is what it became, National Educational Television, sort of dumped the radio part. Uh, and I found the job. The job that I found was in the mailroom. And I said, well, wait a minute. I just came away from three years of college. What is this mailroom business? I said, well, you've shown us two things. Number one is that you weren't very successful when the most important person to work for was yourself. And number two, you have three years of college already. How do we know that you're not going to disappear on us and go back and finish your college education? And so there were very few organizations that wanted to take, uh, take a chance on me. But National Education of Television Radio Center said, yes, sure. You know, come on here. We need people to work in the mailroom. And... The more I learned about that organization and what they did, you know, particularly on the television side, the more I became just totally mesmerized and enchanted with it. Um, and I knew that somehow or another, I was going to make a career of this. And what what led you? What did you do for ten years? You didn't work in the mailroom for ten years. I <clears throat> I did not work in the mailroom for anyway. ten years. Uh, Shortly after working in the mailroom, well, one of the things that happened is I thought, well, yeah, you're right. I, I, I can't work in the mailroom, <laughs> you know, as a, as a career and somehow another retire after 50 years to go watch you working in the mailroom. <laughs> and I didn't, really didn't think at that time that I had much of a future at National Education or Television, you know, as a mail clerk. And maybe a year afterwards, I left. And I went to work for the federal government. Talk about a huge mistake. <laughs> I, would, I went to work as a clerk for the Social Security Department. The pay was better. The benefits were better. But then I had to join a union because to take advantage of those better benefits. And probably at the end of the day, I ended up walking away with maybe $3 more a week. Um, and Ken, I mean, we're talking about back, <laughs> back in the day. The yep. first, first year that I worked, I made $2,600 for the year. Mm. And goodness knows, you know, so I've, I've, I've long forgotten exactly the, the arithmetic and the amount of money I made for the Social Security Administration. But what was a very telling point was I worked for the Social Security Administration for two weeks before I found a way to walk back into National Educational Television and say, hello, do you remember me? <laughs> and it was, it was a clear sign in my mind that I had made a huge mistake. And apparently there were other people at National Educational Television that thought perhaps it was a mistake that they let me go. And so I was rehired, and I think I lasted at Social Security about six months. <laughs> And I was hired back, but in a different capacity. I still worked in a mailroom, but a specific part of the mailroom that catered to the public relations department. 
And I was also given an opportunity to do some writing while I was in the public relations department. So I became sort of like a junior writer, junior associate writer in the public relations department. And I got an opportunity to work as as a production assistant on a program called News in Perspective. And News in Perspective was done in a television studio every other week. It probably more resembled what we see now today as the Sunday morning talk shows, where a moderator sits around with two or three people and they discuss news events of the day, the week, or uh, of, of importance. The moderator at the time was Lester Markell, who worked at the New York Times, and he was getting on in years, and he retired, and the moderator became Clifton Daniel. And I don't know if that name rings a bell to you, but Clifton Daniel was the son-in-law of Harry Truman. That name rings a bell. Married to Margaret Truman. (laughs) Uh, Clifton Daniel was an associate editor of the New York Times. So every couple of weeks he would come in and do uh, news and perspective, moderate news and perspective. Um, More often than not, regulars on the show were Tom Wicker. Yep, Um, that name. Uh, he wrote a great book about Attica after the... Yes, I was uh, just going to mention that, the as a matter of fact. Um, and, and a couple of other people would, would join in from, from time to time. But what was really neat for me was the show was predominantly done in New York City. Less occasionally it was done in Washington, D.C., but even more so if there were big news events happening elsewhere in the country, we would travel... Uh, I've been to Cleveland doing uh, programs for News and Perspective, went to Atlanta and Detroit. But also, this was a day when news operations would cover news anywhere they happened. And national educational television and News and Perspective were considered enough national, had enough national exposure that this young kid got to travel around the world. With news and perspective, I went to Paris. Then it was the Vietnam War was about to wrap up. And so there was the international peace talks were going on, the Vietnam peace talks were going on in the International Conference Center in Paris. And so I was there for that. Um, this was in the era when people in the Middle East couldn't quite get together and see eye to eye, and so they battled with each other using armaments, I mean, what we would call wars. There was a six-day war between uh, Egypt and Israel. Uh, I got to go to Egypt in the wake of that um, because News and Perspective went. Um, I don't remember exactly what happened in Israel in terms of the program, but News and Perspective went to Egypt to Cairo for an interview between Clifton Daniel and Abdul Gamal Nasser, the president of Israel. And I got, I'm sorry, the president of Egypt. And I got to go and be part of the production team. So here I was in the presidential palace in Cairo. Uh, We also did a program in Saigon and was in the presidential palace of Nguyen Van Thieu. 
we did a program in Germany. I was in the chancellor's office, and the chancellor was Willy Brandt. Um, so I, I, I even, at this point, am amazed by the experiences that I was a, a, able to have at a very, very young age, you know, working with, with News and Perspective and National Education of Television. And that was before the better part of my career happened when I came to Boston in 1971. And how did that happen? Um, I, I, I get an opportunity from time to time to appear before young people, young ambitious people who want to know something about the industry that I was in and you know, want to know a little bit about how I was able to achieve the things that I've achieved. And one of the things that I say is that as much as what you know is important. Who you know is important. And while I was at NET, one of the people who was a program associate, as we called him at the time, if I'm not mistaken, was Larry Picard. Larry Picard was the first news director at WCVB-TV back in the 1970s. Um, and he and I worked closely together. Um, my basically getting information from him about the programs that he was doing while I was like this junior writer in the public relations department. And so I would compile information about his programs and send them out to all of the affiliate stations. Um, my recollection is at the time, the public television network NET had, you know, maybe 50 affiliate stations around the country half of them in what they called major cities and the other half in, in, in smaller cities. Um, a huge proportion of them, I think, were on college campuses. So you'd find, I mean, sort of the counterpart part of uh, like BUR Radio, which is on mm -hmm. a, a non-commercial station, which is on the campus of you know, Boston University. Um, but we had great, great, great opportunities to do lots and lots of, of, of work. And, you know, the, the, the program, interestingly enough, was I don't believe we ever did News of Perspective live. It was always taped. So we would tape it, and it, you know, it, it's a head-scratcher when you talk right. about trying to do something that's, that's newsworthy and topical. And you're taping a show. So we would tape the show on a Wednesday. And then the show would air the following Wednesday on the first tier of stations. That first tier of stations would take the videotapes that we'd sent them with the program that was done a week before. And they would then send that video over to the second tier of stations. So basically, it was three weeks later after the show was taped, that the second tier of stations would put it on the air. And then they would take those tapes, those videotapes, and by the way, we're not talking about half-inch video or SD cards, which you can put in a pocket. We're talking about two-inch videotapes that probably weighed 30 pounds. And, you know, even the shipping bills were enormous, <laughs> sending these things all over the country. Uh, to send 25 of them to the stations, and they were sending the 25 elsewhere. And in the meantime, you were sending 25 more to that first tier, you know, because things continued to get recycled. But it was just um, an incredible process to try and 
see how you could keep things current. One of the things that happened was a, a program was recorded, and the topic had to do with something in the Middle East. And before a week was out, a war broke out. So if three people are sitting around a table talking about events in such and such a country, and then a war breaks out, and it, but there was no mention of it because they recorded it the day before. <laughs> so as best they could, they said, well, we have to get everybody back in the studio. We have to re-record this. And, you know, that segment that we did that talked about, and I'm, you know, I, I don't remember what the conflict was. But there was one individual who had jumped on a plane after the show and was in Europe, so they couldn't bring him back. So what did they do? They had, the, they had the segment, they had the individual, two of the individuals there, they conducted the conversation, and then they put someone else in the chair who kind of resembled the guy who was missing. And so for this maybe eight minute, nine minute discussion, you know, this person never said a word <laughs> because it wasn't the right person. And all you did was take an over-the-shoulder shot of him so you could you basically kind of get a little bit of his hair, a little bit of his shoulder, you know, showing in the shot. Um, I mean, that's the sort of thing that would absolutely never fly today. I mean, you would never be able to. But, you know, we're all caught in a situation where, you know, we have to update this. You know, we can't put it on the air with no mention whatsoever of a major news event happening. Um, but again, I, I, I digress, but you know, just the kind of experiences that we had and that I was just so fortunate to be a part of way back in the day. Now, you mentioned, I knew Larry Picard a little bit, actually. Oh, you did? Good. Yeah, he was good friends with a lady that I knew named Eleanor O'Keefe. Oh, yes. Eleanor O'Keefe was his administrative assistant, uh, a fellow Needham resident. Yep. Um, yep. Haven't talked uh, to her in a long time, but the, knew her very well. Delightful woman. Delightful I can remember woman. being at a party at her house, mm -hmm. and Larry and her and my parents and everybody did a rousing rendition of O Canada. Uh -huh. <laughs> One of the now, great well, ways well, to spend a Saturday night. Well, why was that? Well, because my parents came to Boston and... They wanted to meet some of the people that I knew, and so Eleanor was good friends with a lady who worked at WBZ Radio at the time, so we all decided to get together and have this big party, and she invited Larry Picard. So that's how I got to know Larry. But what was the Canadian um, it just seemed connection? To be, it was, just seemed to be popular at the time, Oh, so hmm. we, we just decided to sing it. Oh, okay. I, I thought maybe someone was Canadian or you were Canadian. Oh, no, had, no, nope, nope. nope. That was that was a, a big hit on the on the on the charts at the time. Oh my! Uh, it was sung by a very popular gentleman in uh, Montreal, and I love this mm -hmm. name, Roger Doucet. Roger Doucet. Roger Doucet. You got to get the row in there, or it don't work. <laughs> very good. <laughs> And and we all sang it, and we just had a wonderful evening. But I oh, remember the okay. name Larry Picard with yeah. great fondness. Mm -hmm. Oh, terrific! Very terrific. nice gentleman. Yeah, you know, I, I believe that he was there for the ten years that I worked with NET. Um, and I'm not don't remember how many years he stayed at WCVB um, after the station went on the air back in 1972. Um, tell tell me about that. I mean, that must have been. 
a great thing to be a part of because I can remember when they got the license and they used to be WHDH TV and then became WCVB. So I'm curious as to your recollections of those early days and what it was like to get a great station started. My recollection, first of all, I arrived at at WCVB before it was even WCVB. Um, I arrived in Boston in August of 1971. At that point, you know, the optimistic uh, attitude was that the station would go on the air in September of 1971. And Larry Picard and I had discussed what my role would be. I would be, I guess, what we call today um, a news producer, um, a news remote producer. Uh, we called it a reporter contact. So I would be the person who would go out and okay, you know, give me all of the information. Let's, you know, throw together what this producer, what this reporter is going to do when, when they show up, the questions that they may be interested in asking you and why we think that you're an important part of this. Um, and, you know, I would be setting up locations and the like. In a lot of ways, the sort of things that I did for News and Perspective um, as an associate producer and producer in, in New York. But once I arrived in, at WCVB in August, uh, there were lots of different maneuverings going on in the courts and lots of delays. And so WCVB didn't go on the air until March 19, 1972. So there were like five, six, seven months where I was hoping and praying <laughs> that this great opportunity that I that I had been promised would come, you know, would come true, and it would. Those are some very difficult days because we had no idea what was going to happen in terms of the station actually getting a license and actually getting permission to go in the air. But finally, it did happen, and it was like a huge celebration uh, when the courts finally said, okay, all of the challenges are over, and WCVB will be granted an opportunity to go on the air um, March 19, 1972. And I remember everybody stayed up to see the sign-on, which, I don't know, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, uh, WHDH went off, and WCVB came on, and I, if my memory serves me correctly, these were the days when most television stations were not 24-7 as they are now. Television stations would go dark like right after midnight and come back on with a sunrise opening at you know 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning. But uh, on this particular occasion, WCVB came on, and I'm pretty sure it was like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And thus, you know, launched careers for lots of different—I mean, you know, we were all scrambling. I was—at that, at that point, I had been producing news programs, uh, news segments for um, News and Perspective in New York— I uh, traveled around the country, you know, pretty much as a setup person. Uh, for example, we went into Chicago, and I think it was during the Nixon administration. Um, and we decided that since race was an issue there, we ought to do uh, a show on 
Richard Nixon and the black community. And so I was running around Chicago with a film crew and a microphone and doing interviews with people. Um, and it is that sort of thing that I did. Either um, I would do film and tape research and get materials that we could use to put together little packages so we could do introductions to the stories that were going to be discussed on, on News and Perspective. And then there were, again, those rare occasions when I was actually a part of making those um, you know, short uh, intro productions by being on the air, if you will, by doing interviews and being the one asking the questions, and on rare occasions being heard as the one an answering the questions and being seen as the one answering the questions. But it was that sort of thing that I was expected to do when I started at WCVB as a reporter contact. But I have, and, and I don't know this is gospel, but I have the feeling that what happened is that the long delay between September, when we were anticipating getting on the air in 71, and March of the following year, the six-month period where the station had to be supported and staffed and you know made ready. Uh, and I tend to think that that time where there was no revenue coming in because we weren't on the CVB wasn't on the air yet, uh, there was no commercial revenue that probably uh, that meant that we didn't have quite as much money and maybe the luxury of having a person who was running around doing something, doing work for another reporter, um, <laughs> wasn't something that WCVB uh, can afford. Now, obviously, nobody ever said to me, Jim, here are the circumstances now and how they've changed, but I, you know, I, I managed to uh, stay there for the, um, for the duration of that interim period while we were waiting to go on the air. But once CVB went on the air, I was no longer a reporter contact. I was a reporter. And so, so the work that I was doing to set someone else up, I really had to do to set myself up. So and, what led to your break to get on the air and eventually become uh, an anchor for the morning eye-opener news? Um, <clears throat> the, wor the work that I did as a reporter, you know, thank goodness, you know, continued to get better and better and better. And then there were significant changes being made in personnel at WCVB. People were being moved around. And I, but I can't say that I remember exactly whether or not, you know, people were leaving. But at one point, they needed someone to do the weekend news. And I do remember the conversation that I had at that point with the late Jim Thistle, who was the news director at uh, WCVB at the time. This is Jim. We want to, want to try you out on the anchor desk uh, on the weekends. And I you know, was excited about the prospect and looked forward to that opportunity. I said, well, okay, great. Do you have any idea about how much time you want me on the anchor desk? You know, well, we're going to sign a contract or... This is, oh, you know, we'll, we'll give it a couple of weeks, you know, maybe six weeks or so. We'll see how it is. Well, that was 1976, and I was the anchor of the weekend news from 1976 to 1984. Whoa. In 1984, we had a new news director. It was Phil Balboni, and Phil Balboni you know, brought me into the office and said, Jim, we're thinking about making some more changes. Um, we'd like to give you a shot on the eye-opener news 
want you to do the eye opener in the midday. And again, it was one of those conversations, okay, great, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I look at this as a golden opportunity. I, I am really excited about this prospect. Um, how long are we talking? And Phil Balboni said, well, uh, let's, let's give it six months. If we're going to make any changes, I think six months will give us an opportunity to you know, see how you do and uh, see how you work with your co-anchors and you know, how successful the shows are. So I did the eye-opener news, and I believe at the time it was with Ann McGrath. Ah. Um, and the midday, the midday also was with Ann McGrath as, as my co-anchor. So um, you did two newscasts. You I did, did the morning two, and two the Two newscasts a day, the eye-opener news. My recollection is that the eye-opener news came on at f maybe 6 o'clock at that point. Possibly as early as 5:30, um, and you know the, the the time on the sign on changed from time to time. Um, it went from five from six o'clock to 5:30, and then from 5:30 to five o'clock. So for the majority of my career, as doing the as the eye opener anchor, we did a two-hour newscast from five in the morning until seven in the morning. Uh, the midday maintained its status as a half hour newscast, you know, but I did the midday for 22 years. Wow. I did, I did the eye-opener news for 16 years. Um, stopped doing the eye-opener news at you know, some way midway of 2000 and stopped doing the um, midday news in 2006. And I ended my career at WCVB at the end of 2008. Now, I, I may be mistaken in my history here, but for a while, were you not the only early morning newscast at five uh, in the morning? Uh, no. No? No, not, not that I recall. Um, I, I believe that, that, that Channel 4, WBZ, had an early morning newscast. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that um, Channel 7, I guess they were... WNEV, WNEC, yeah. know, diff different call letters. Um, you know that would, would confuse anybody trying to maintain, <laughs> uh, keep up with the with the changes of the other stations. I mean, WCVB has been CVB since 1972, um, and it's probably the only one that's maintained the same call letters and the same um, network affiliation since it's been on the air. It's been an ABC station since it went on the air. Now, a mutual friend of ours said to me, be sure and ask Jim Boyd about his middle name. Really? Yep. Now, I, is it Jim Lloyd Boyd? Am I right uh, on that information? Yes. Uh, I like that. I, I, I would, <laughs> my given names were James Lloyd, my surname Boyd. Mm -hmm. uh, I have very, <laughs> very poetic parents. And at, at one point in my career, I thought, oh, that, that's got a ring to it. Maybe I should change it. <laughs> um, maybe to James Lloyd Boyd or Jim Lloyd Boyd, but it just didn't seem to have the ring to it. But what I've decided lately is that J. Lloyd Boyd probably would have sounded a whole lot better. But, you know, I don't have an on-air career. I'm not really concerned about that sort of thing now. But, yes, Lloyd is my middle name. You know, very poetic parents, Lloyd Boyd. 
Yeah, I like that's that. That's who I am. What did you do your last two years if you weren't doing the midday and uh, the early morning news? Uh, the last two years, I was a special correspondent. Um, I also had an opportunity to report for the BostonChannel.com, which is the online uh, outlet at, at Channel 5, which was pretty incredible. What, what I did those last two years is I would come in in the morning, I would work for the BostonChannel.com, research a story, and then write an online version of the story, and then basically sever ties with BostonChannel.com at noon, and then go out and do, more often than not, a television version of exactly the same story that I had done an online version of. Mm-hmm. So I'd be in in the morning, you know, making phone calls, getting the story together, trying to figure out, you know, whether or not it was something that was worthy of fleshing out to um, a, a television report, and then, you know, grabbing a, a photographer, running out and, and doing the story and, and presenting it, again, more often than not, as a live report, 5, 5.30 or 6 o'clock. I was surprised to find out that you do some acting, is that what made you decide to leave Channel 5? Uh, no, 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 no. Well, I think my, my decision to leave Channel 5 was one of those things that where I thought, you know, this has been an absolutely great career. You know, certainly, I have amassed a number of years and great experiences at CVB. I'm old enough to retire. Um, and I would much rather be able to say that I've gone out on top as opposed to wait until I get stale and cranky and a crotchety <laughs> old man complaining about everything and this is not like the good old days. <laughs> and so it just it just seemed right to mm-hmm. me that it was time for me to retire. Um, but the acting thing didn't come for a while. Yes, I, yes, we'll put it in the air quotes. You know, I have been, been doing some acting of late. But what was predominant in my mind was all of the years that I was at WCVB, as I you know, mentioned earlier, uh, I, I made a mess of my college career <laughs> you know, back as a youngster. And it was something that, shall I use the word, haunted me. Mm-hmm. I don't have a college degree. And by the time I retired, my youngest daughter had already started college. And so I was facing the prospect of being the only person in my family who doesn't have a college degree. Um, And so that, for me, was what was uppermost in my mind, to go back to school and finish my college degree. So that's that's what I did immediately after I retired in December uh, 2008. Um, I enrolled in UMass Boston in January of 2009. Uh, in the summer of 2009, I switched over, if you will, transferred to Tufts University, and then spent the next four years as a student on campus, basically halftime, um, because as bad as my experience was at Long Island University in, in New York, um, I did have enough credits from there, and you know, I, I did make an opportunity while I was working at National Education of Television to go to night school. And so between Fairleigh Dickinson University where I went to night school and Long Island University where I went right after high school, I did have enough credits to 
be considered a junior at Tufts University. Um, but I didn't have any, any reason to go full-time you know, and take four or five classes at once. So I just took two classes at a time, two classes a semester, <clears throat> excuse me, and finished uh, my college education at Tufts University. Graduated in 2013 uh, with a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology. Hey, you're a pretty smart cookie. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it was an incredible challenge. Uh, and I have to say I loved every minute of it. It was doing work for the sake of doing work. It was learning for the sake of learning. It was challenging myself for the sake of, you know, really honoring a long lost promise to myself. Um, and I guess I have to say posthumously promising my parents um, you know, long gone, but you know, I always felt that I disappointed them, and I know how happy they would be to know that I finally did get that college degree that they wanted so desperately for me to have. Uh, so what happened? And so we'll talk a little bit about the the acting thing. In all of the years that I was at WCVB, I was in the union, um, the after union, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. Well. AFTRA merged with SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. Yep. And this merger took place, I don't know, maybe four years ago. And as it was about to happen, I, I guess someone went into the database and looked at all the people who held you know, AFTRA cards, uh, AFTRA union cards, and said, well, we're going to have to include them in the work that SAG does. And so I started getting emails suggesting that they needed extras for movies or background actors for movies. And frankly, as I was getting those while I was still in school, I basically ignored them because <laughs> I thought I had enough of a challenge to try to figure out how to deal with these sociology classes and these classes on Africa and the Spanish language classes that I had to, had to take. So in my senior year in 2013, I got what they call an avail availability check email saying we will need X number of extras on such and such a day for, and I don't think they tell you exactly what films they want you to work on. You know, generally, any films that are in progress are a huge secret. Um, and you have to sign non-disclosure agreements that you just won't breathe a word that you're working on this film, you know anything about it. Um, but at any rate, I said, hmm, well, this doesn't look like it's too much heavy lifting. It looks like it's only one day. You know, why don't I sign up for it? And lo and behold, Boston Casting called me back and said, Jim, are you still available on such and such a day, which happened to be Monday? I didn't have classes on Monday. And again, you know, this was in, I'm pretty sure it was April. I had like two months left for, for school, and I, you know, I thought I pretty much had it nailed by that point anyway. So I got an opportunity to work on American Hustle, mm -hmm. which was being, the portions of it were being filmed in Worcester. And it's, Another one of those circumstances, not unlike when I walked into National Educational Television and started working there, that 
everything that I saw, I was fascinated by. All of the work that was being done, and it was so vastly different. You know, one of the, a couple of the few things that were comparable to what you see in television, particularly television news, is yes, they use cameras to record <laughs> things, and they use microphones to record sound. But the way that things are done in making a major motion picture and putting a television newscast together or a television uh, magazine show together, vastly, vastly different. But I was just fascinated by it. Is the newscast easier than acting? Because in a newscast, you have a teleprompter you can look at. In acting, you have to, unless the situation has changed, since people I've talked to, like a Raymond Burr, have to sit there and memorize their lines. Is that difficult for you? Well, first of all, you have to understand the difference between a principal actor and a background actor. Generally, background actors are the people that they use so that the principal actors are not walking in front of blank walls or out there walking on empty streets. Uh, it's basically principal, the background actors are part of the scenery. Very, very, very seldom do you have background actors or extras who have lines. So basically what you have to memorize is what to do. And so it's a whole lot easier to memorize, okay, this is your one, which is the place that you start, and this is where you end up. You know, however, you get, however you're told to get from one to two, you get from your one. Yeah. So you listen to somebody says, okay, background. <laughs> and then the background does whatever they're told to do. You go to wherever. Yeah. I mean, it can, it can get more complicated. And there are opportunities when some background actors will go to auditions, and I've, I've done that. Um, but I guess to answer the question that you ask, I find it much more difficult, much, much more difficult uh, to to do any kind of acting than to be a television news anchor or a television news reporter. So so can we see you in a romantic lead or a or a or a or a tough heavy with a submachine gun? Um, uh, <laughs> I I have worked. I I like I have to put it that way. I have worked probably thirty movies, thirty five movies, T V shows Mm. commercials and for the most part you will never know that I worked a particular movie uh, the first one that I talked about uh, American Hustle mm -hmm. the one mistake that everybody who does background acting or is an extra learns that they should not make is to say oh I worked in such and such a movie I was in such and such a scene let's all go to the movie so I, I took the whole family we're all sitting there it's around the Christmas holidays, and my daughters and wife and I are sitting in the theater. American Hustle comes, the scene that I was in comes, the camera pans over to right where I was, and it cuts before it even showed me, and I was woefully embarrassed. I mean, so what, what I have been able to do is to go to most of the movies that I've worked, find the scenes that I was in, and be able to do a screen grab and says, aha, here <laughs> I am. Um, on rare occasion, you know, people will go to the theater and watch a movie and say, oh my goodness, that was Jim Boyd who just walked by, <laughs> right? Um, 
Manchester by the Sea is probably the one where I got the most exposure and was most recognizable. Um, I played the role of a hospital administrator. Ah. And in a scene, Casey Affleck is in the hospital finding out that his brother, well, the Casey Affleck character is in the hospital finding out his brother had just died. And I was with uh, some staff member walking down the corridor behind them but in such a way that I was very recognizable. I had people call me and say, Jim, I just saw Manchester by the Sea, and I saw you in it. <laughs> um, but I've, I've, yeah. And some really, really top-notch films have been made here in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. uh, Manchester by the Sea, you know, award-winning. Um, Spotlight, award-winning, uh, done here in Massachusetts. Uh, American Hustle got nominations. I don't remember which awards were won, but I don't believe it was Best Picture. Uh, but it's just a great, great, great opportunity. Uh, and, I, and I continue to do that kind of work. I mean, it's, it's so much fun. Um, I did get a speaking role in a movie with Jack Black that was done. It's now running on Netflix. And actually, if you... We have Netflix, as a matter of okay. fact. Okay, and if, if you don't want to watch the entire film, you can watch um, the trailer, and I'm in the trailer. I'm in the trailer for about a half a second, but, <laughs> uh, but, it, but in the film, I mean, I do actually, you know, do actually speak. Uh, I went, went to New York and did a TV series called Billions, mm -hmm. and I was in a scene for eight seconds in Billions. <laughs> Uh, I, went, I went to New York and I did uh, one of the episodes of um, Orange is the New Black, which is also on Netflix. And I have no idea whether or not I've appeared in it. I haven't seen that episode. I mean, it's into like six or seven seasons now. And, oh, my um, goodness. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to find an, an episode, um, and in particularly a segment of an episode that you're in. And, but it's... It's been a it's been a joy. I mean, one of the things that I that I've loved about retirement mm -hmm. is you get an opportunity to do what you want to do when you want to do it. I'll buy that. Um, and you're responsible for determining your own time and your own schedule. Yep. Um, yeah. <clears throat> we we share the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Huh? Yep. And. Uh, I am on board of the of the board mm -hmm. of the board of the Hall of Fame, uh, so you know we have have meetings about once a month, and we have have committee assignments that I am just really in, enthralled to be able to do and hopefully to uh, you know, to get to get accomplished and you know, get people to know more about the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Uh, you know we have. An actual wall where all of the photographs and short bios of all of the people that have been inducted since 2007, and uh, that's at the Massasoit uh, Community College. Massachusetts Massasoit Community College at the Killian Gallery, which is in uh, in Canton, Massachusetts. Very good. Uh, you are a well-deserving member of the hall. Uh, you contributed a great deal to the media here in Boston. And uh, I can't thank you enough for coming in here because it's been a great thrill for me uh -huh. to be able to sit across from a gentleman whose work I have liked and admired for many, many years. 
and I can't thank you enough for coming in here, Jim Boyd. I can't thank you so much for having me, and it's just such a such a pleasure, you know, to listen to that voice again <laughs> <laughs> and hear it from so from so close this time. Yeah. You know <laughs> what? I say the same thing about people sometimes too, uh, and and it is a great. It, it's a it's no. a whole different feeling. And, and you made it enjoyable. Well, thank you so much. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. So long, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.